0: Hey everybody. Welcome to another episode of Courtside with and Tennis, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. It is an absolute privilege to have with us former number one doubles player in the world, a four-time Grand Slam women's doubles champion, and now a very successful commentator with ESPN, and also the host of the Renee Stubbs Tennis Podcast. Please welcome to the pod, Renee Stubbs. Renee, thank you so, so much for for uh, taking time out of your day and chatting tennis with us.
1: You're all very welcome. Nice to be here.
0: Our current snapshot, just, you know, where where are you at? What What's keeping you busy? What's keeping you busy other than watching some uh, astounding clay court tennis, both on the men's and women's side?
1: Yeah, well, um, unfortunately, uh, about uh, three days ago, I caught the dreaded COVID. So I'm sitting here um, at home in uh, New York, in New York City, where I live. Um, I was a, I'm about to get going, uh, head over to uh, France for... Tournament leading up to the French Open. I don't know if I'll be able to get away for that one now, but I'll be definitely at the French Open. I'm still coaching uh, Sam Stosa. In, uh, she's playing doubles only now just uh, to help her finish her career off the way she wants to and um, and uh, obviously still working for ESPN. Um, but, um, yeah, I'm ready. I, I, the good thing about – well, there's no such thing as good thing about having COVID, but one good thing about it is you're right. I have been able to sit here and watch every single tennis match in Madrid over the last few days, and what a great tournament it's been so far.
0: It's been amazing and and hope your symptoms are not bad and hope you get better real soon and you could resume your travels. And we're going to get into some of the tennis. We're going to get into your playing career and coaching uh, and broadcasting as well. But first, um, uh, Steve and I wanted to mention a couple of players to you and kind of talk about, uh, you know, hear your views on them. And and the first one, and I know she's a little, she's, she's near and dear to your heart. Steve and I have talked about her before. We've talked about it with other guests, but Ash Barty, and for how good she is on the court, um, you hear just as good, if not better, things about her off the court. I know you know her pretty well, would love to hear your insight on Ash, and if there's a small possibility of her maybe still possibly coming back.
1: Well, I, I will, I'll answer the last question first. I think um, the possibility of her coming back is very, very small. Um, I just feel like... You know, when her coach said that the first Grand Slam that she won at the French Open, the first thing out of her mouth to him was, Can I retire now? (laughs) That should tell you quite a lot about her. Most players, when they win a Grand Slam or they win a big tournament, they get that drug. And I say that taking um, playing athletics for a living or being a professional sports athlete is like, it's like legal addiction, right? So you get that high, you get that hit. Oh my God, like, can I win another Grand Slam? This is the best feeling ever. For Ash, I think for her to make the statement of can I retire now, that means that she didn't want the high continually over and over. And some players just need that for their ego to keep going, you know, Um, and then they get to 35 and they feel like time is running out and they want to win another one. And I think for Ash, it was more along the lines of, "Okay, I came back from the first retirement to probably answer a lot of questions that she still had about herself and her own ability to how good could she be? Cause everyone kept telling her how good she could be. And I think once she won that grand slam, she was like, okay, I've answered all the questions. I'm really good. I can win a grand slam. Can I stop now? Because I really don't like this life. I don't like traveling. I don't like being away from my family. She's not a big fan of being in the gym. Got to be honest. I mean, as much as practice, not, not the lover of practice either, so I think all of that cumulative, when she won Wimbledon, I think that just answered every single question that she could possibly be answered ever. And to say as an Australian to, that you win Wimbledon, it's like, oh, my God, there's nothing bigger in tennis to, to you as an Aussie growing up. And then I, I think she could have really put her rackets down after that and been done. Um, but I think, again, the answer of could she win the Aussie, you know, those, those questions are continually in her brain. And I think once she did that, she's just like, none of this is making me happier. I don't like traveling. I think the I think COVID really ruined her. I think being home for that period of time, the first year in 2020, I think she actually loved it so much that she was, and she would have had a lot of money in the bank at that point. She probably thought, why do I want to keep doing this? And then of course she comes back and spends six months on the road in 2021, you know, and playing Wimbledon and all of that pressure on her shoulders. And I think the dichotomy of staying home for eight months the year before, being away for six months, I think it just answered the question in her, which was, yes, I'm very good. I've already won all these things. I'm number one in the world. I've got all the money in the world that I need for my simple life because she likes to live a simple life. And I don't want to be away anymore. I much prefer being at home. And I think all of those cumulative effects is what allowed her to say, I'm done. So you're saying,
2: you're saying the chances are are slim and none that she'll come back
1: yeah i i'm I'm more on the category of slim and none, and I think Steve, one of the reasons is that I think she's answered all the questions that she wants to she doesn't need to in her own mind you know um you know I had a, a conversation with her on text um, prior to her coming back the first time, and I still have it on my phone, and it was. You know, she was very down on herself for not winning a Grand Slam and doubles. She, I think at that point had lost four in, a, in, in the finals, but she was so young. You know, I was like, first of all, I think what you've achieved already at your young age is incredible. Um, but she was very down on herself, like, you know, loser, never won one, blah, blah, blah. But that was before she came back. So I think she had like this love-hate relationship with tennis. And so I think, Steve, when she came back and just accomplished so much in that time and as I said she's a very simple girl from a town in called Ipswich outside of Brisbane she built her dream home um, on the golf course in um, just outside of Ipswich very small town she's so happy she's so happy walking her dogs playing golf every day not having the pressure of traveling not having the pressure of the expectation on her shoulders and I really think that she doesn't want that feeling ever again.
0: Well, I will, I will say this, and we'll end, we'll end it with this. You know, as a tennis fan, selfishly, tennis fans, especially in Australia, were happy she did not put her rackets down after Wimbledon because what she did in Australia, and I mentioned this to Steve and a few others, That was a Steffi Steffi Graf-like run through Australia. She absolutely dominated. She didn't break Steffi's record, but she of fewest games lost through a slam, but it was close. And it was so, so great to to see her do that. And and we wish her much happiness, you know, obviously. Just
1: just on that, I think one of the reasons why she played so well there was because I think she thought, I think she was already in her heart knowing that she was done. And I think that this was just like, I'm just going to go out and play. I'm just going to go and play. If I win, great. If I don't, eh, I think I'm done. So I think she went out there with not a lot of pressure on her shoulders. In the in the respect of, if I win, great. Even if I don't, look, I've I've achieved more than I ever expected. Um, I think she I think she really thought I'm probably going to be done after this anyway. So just go and enjoy every minute of it.
0: Awesome, awesome. Yeah. Another player who just recently, very recently, days, you know, a few days ago, recently retired. Um, I'm biased towards him because I'm a Chicago guy. He played at University of Illinois, Kevin Anderson, two-time Grand Slam finalist, made the finals in 2017, lost to Rafa in the final. 2018, we remember he had some brutal matches leading up to that final. Not to say that he would have beaten Novak in that final, but it would have been nice if he had a little bit more uh, gas in the tank to say, another person like ash where everyone loved him on the court everyone loved him off the court he got the most out of every ounce of his body um as a tennis player and i'll ask both of you um steve i'll ask you first kevin anderson
2: well i thought he was a it was he was a great professional and i i i i I was hoping he could sustain the pace that you were talking about david the 17 and 18 those were great highlights for him and didn't have much of a chance in either final against Rafa or Novak, but I just thought he was so likable and so committed and and as a big guy, uh, fun to watch. I enjoyed watching him uh, play his attacking game and and he was earnest and there was no nonsense with him. I think he was a great credit to the game and did a lot of great work for the ATP as well that uh, has not been talked about enough.
1: Absolutely. Brilliant. I'll agree with that um, and everywhere. And and actually a really big supporter of the LGBTQ community. He's done a lot of stuff um, for them and has come out to a bunch of events that uh, the Grand Slams have put on, he and his wife. Um, Just a really, as you said, just a really classy guy. Um, Got everything he could out of his career. I think going to college was a great step for him, coming from South Africa. And, of course, Craig Tyler, who's a... um, Tennis Australia's uh, tournament director of the Australian Open and, and of course, he's been through the headlines a little bit lately. But Well, he um, was
0: Kevin's coach at University of Illinois, yeah, Illinois as well.
1: Yeah, that's right. He was his coach. Um, I, I just think uh, Kevin really handled himself so beautifully. And I think him getting to two finals is pretty remarkable, to be honest. I think he would take that and be very proud of himself for, for that, especially in the, in the period of the greatest three players of all time.
0: A hundred percent. I got two more for you. And these two, I'm so excited to hear your views. I'll start with you, Renee, on this one. Anz Jabor just wins Madrid, a player that you love to watch. But if you are on the other side of that net, just brutal to play against. Again, another player that everyone loves off the court. I know you're a huge fan of Anz. Can't wait to hear your thoughts on her.
1: I am a huge fan. I, I'm a huge fan of Ons for reasons off the court. I think she's one of the, well, she is absolutely the nicest player on tour. Uh, there are a lot. There are a lot of great uh, people on tour. She is absolutely up there. She is everyone's babysitter. You know, always, I mean, any player that has a child, Jabeur is all over them, like grabs <laughs> the kids, plays with them she is kind to everybody she's happy every time you see her she's just such a joy to be around as a human being and then her tenor speaks for itself i mean the variety of her game i mean it's interesting because she plays a little bit like ash where she uses the slice back end so beautifully to be able to d- defend change the pace and of course she has a better two-hander than ash ever did ash has a better serve And had a better serve, but Ons can serve really well sometimes and be very sneaky with her serve. So I think the possibility of Ons winning a Grand Slam is super high. She has all the shots and, of course, the drop shot from hell for everybody to play against. (laughs) And the reason why her drop shot is so good, very similar to Alcaraz, is that she pummels the ball. I mean, she hits a big forehand. Her two-handed backhand is big and she can hit the slice long in the court. So when you have the ability to push your opponents back with your ground strokes, when you hit the drop shot, it's very difficult to read because of the fact that she hits the ball so big from the back of the court as well. So that variety like Alcaraz is what makes her drop shot so well. And in the women's game, you know, just maybe not so much in the men's, but in the women's moving someone forward is absolutely important. And uh, she is not only great off the court, but her tennis speaks for itself.
0: Well, I swear that to the listeners, Renee has not seen the outline, but she mentioned the next player that we were going to ask about, and that's Carlos Alcaraz, obviously. I'm going to start with Steve on this one first, and then we're going to hear Renee's thoughts. Steve in our year-end segment predicted Carlos would be top 10. Carlos has made good on Steve's prediction in – less than six months of the year. Okay. He's the only player to beat both Rafa and Novak back to back on clay. There's five other players that have done it, but not on a clay court back to back. We know he could win on hardcore. You saw what he did in Miami. You saw the latter part of last year when he played that unbelievable match on pass, who Tsitsipas still has not beaten. They played unbelievable matches. pass has not beaten Carlos. Um, Steve, I'll ask you this. You can take your prediction that's already done and good, and you could stay with that, or you can raise the stakes. And at the end of the year, do you think this kid may be top five, top three, or maybe even higher?
2: No, I I honestly believe that you look at what he's done already, and he's got Miami in the bank. He's got Barcelona in the bank. As we speak, he's in the finals in Madrid. I honestly believe he's going to complete the year as the number one player in the world because I think he's going to play more than Rafa or Novak. Novak is at a real disadvantage having missed Australia and just trying to get back to the very top of his game. He's closing in on it now, but he missed a lot of time and that was very costly for him. Rafa, I think, is going to be selective in where he goes and where he plays. He's going to conceivably do very well right through the end of the clay court. So this kid is... Is like Rafa in 05. He's ready for every single match and every tournament he plays. The difference is, I think he's now great on all the surfaces. We don't know yet about the grass, but he certainly is almost equally good on hard courts and clay. And I think he's scary good. And I think that semifinal with Djokovic in Madrid was, the, to me was the match of the year. And Novak wasn't 100%, but he was getting much closer to the top of his game and he still couldn't fend him off. I'm just... I, I can't see how he doesn't finish top five, but I believe he'll end the year at number one because the, I want to hear what Renee thinks. But the likes of Medvedev, of course, has got problems and won't be able to play Wimbledon. And he's a moody guy, and I don't think he can sustain it winning strings of tournaments. Zareb, we've seen up and down. Tsitsipas uh, is, is, is going to be right up there, but I don't know how many titles he'll necessarily win. He'll get to a lot of semis and finals. This kid could win seven, eight tournaments this year, in my view so i'm very high
1: on him well i i don't know if you could tell from the nodding of my head throughout that whole entire thing steve but i agree with you i think that there is a real chance a real chance that he can be number one in the world by the end of the year there's no doubt in my mind as well um and i know everyone's probably like oh my god you guys are jumping to oh you go, come on you know best of five is different to best of three and that is all true um but At present, as Steve already pointed out, and what people need to understand, there's a 12-month rotation of points. And I don't believe he has a lot of points to defend. Obviously, the US Open, he had some terrific wins. But he doesn't have a lot of points to defend. It'll be interesting to see him play on grass, although Wimbledon is so different to what it was back 20 years ago. I mean, it is a slow court. It is almost slower than the hard courts that you can play on at times, especially the US Open. Um, So it'll be interesting to see him play there. But I think this last week or two or since Miami has really galvanized him to believe. And that's the key. The key is not talent. We already knew he had talent, but the, the, the truth is, can you mentally grasp being the best player in the world? And I think after what he's just done over the last couple of days and the last couple of months really has proven to him that he can be the best player in the world. And that's what it takes. It takes the mental ability to be able to make yourself believe that you can be the best and and his tennis is good enough he has no weakness in his game zero and I think I love the fact that he actually goes into the net a tremendous amount to finish points off and I think that was always going to be the next bastion of great player is the player that really wants to get in like Tsitsipas same thing but he is better from the back of the court than Tsitsipas particularly on the back end so He moves better than any player on tour. He's equivalent to Novak when Novak was his best. He has the splits. He can get out wide. He can explosively move forward side to side. And mentally, and I cannot stress that enough, you have to believe you can win these big matches. And he's proven that now. Clearly, we'll see what he can do at the Grand Slams because he hasn't really done that yet, but he's 19. So there's no doubt in my mind, by the end of the year, he can be number one as well.
0: Wow. That's awesome. (laughs) No, that was great to hear your insight on those players we want to get into your career a bit, because I mean, what a career you had Four Grand Slam titles and women's dubs, uh, two Grand Slam titles and mixed doubles. You won three of your four women's doubles titles with Lisa Raymond. Um, I always ask when we have people who, who were very successful in the doubles court, how would you wind up playing with, with Lisa and talk a little bit about how how well you two mesh together?
1: Yeah, that's a very sordid story there, my friends. But um, we, uh, as Steve laughs, uh, but we we became very good friends and we played our first tournament in Quebec City a hundred years ago. Um, (laughs) And... um, you know, we gelled immediately and I think what makes a great doubles partnership is also what are my strengths, what are my weaknesses and also it's also needs to be about your personalities and I'm very aggressive and I was, you know, I'm a little bit of a coach on the court, I need to play with somebody who's going to be receptive to me being a little up and down emotionally and also be receptive to me telling them sort of what to do and, um, if anyone listens to this that has played with me, we'll be laughing their heads off right now. But, um, but that's just a fact. And, and when I played with Lisa, that gelled perfectly, um, because we both played great at the net. We both have very good serves. Um, Lisa was a better returner than me, but I took advantage of the, you know, the good returns. And, and then, um, you know, eventually we, we actually got into a relationship and <laughs> we played against each other. When we weren't really sure uh, if we should play together, and this was prior to us being in a relationship, and she started playing with um, Gabriella Sabatini, and I can't remember what year it was, and I was kind of playing with random people, and then we played against each other in, I think, a quarterfinal or semifinal somewhere in, uh, I believe, in Charleston, not Charleston, in uh, Hilton Head, South Carolina. And we played against each other for the first time when we were together as a partnership, as a relationship. (laughs) And it was a set all in our match and it rained and we had to go back to the hotel together. And I said to her, this is a nightmare. We cannot play against each other like this. This is terrible because we were always going to play each other because we were both very good doubles players. So we will continually play against each other if this was going to stay the way it was. So it was one of the reasons for us to to play together is so we didn't have to play against each other. Um, And uh, clearly that worked out very well because we won 33 tournaments together, you know, three grand slams. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we did that for six or seven years together as a partnership and, and, and then, you know, we broke up and, you know, all the shit hit the fan and all of that sort of stuff. But, you know, we, we just, we were very, very good together. Um, as a partnership, we didn't have a lot of weaknesses on the court and, you know, I would pull her out of some depressive moments on court. And Lisa was known to sort of hide away when she got, you know, nervous. And I was, I tended to be over the top. So we balanced each other out really well on the court and, you know, our success came from keeping each other together emotionally, but also um, our games just smashed really well together.
0: No, that's great. Thank you for sharing, sharing those stories. Um, always interesting to hear how successful doubles partnerships uh, wind up. So thank you for sharing that the broadcasting aspect of it. And, and you're phenomenal as a, at ESPN, we, we love your work there. Was that something that you kind of sought out and reached out to your contacts um, that you knew on tour in the media space? Or was that something there you had no idea that you were going to get involved in this and they sort of reached out to you? How did that all get started?
1: It's a really interesting story, to be honest. But um, when I was back, I think I was 19 years of age. I was just starting on tour, was playing a tournament in Australia. And um, Steve will know a great man in Australian television broadcasting by the name of Gary Wilkinson. So Gary Wilkinson came up to me um, at a party, at a player party in Brisbane. And, you know, he was so lovely. And he said, Well, what do you want to do when you're done playing, Renee? And I and I was like, Well, calm down, Gary. I'm only 19. I'm just starting my career. I'm not thinking about (laughs) the next life. And I said, I don't know, maybe I could get into broadcasting like you or something. And it was sort of a joke, but sort of not. Because I thought I could be good at it. But as I said, I was just starting my own tennis career. And he said, well, really interesting. Why don't you do a match with me tomorrow? And this is prior to television being really sort of, I don't know, it was was less of a machine, you know, with networks picking up tennis events and things. And and clearly, because he said, why don't you work with me tomorrow? Um, So I did. I did a match with him. And it was Nicole Pratt against Sabine Applemans, so I'll never forget, in Brisbane. And I did my first television match with him. And I was just starting my tennis career. So I think immediately I thought, oh, I can actually do this. I'm not bad. I'm a decent analyst. Um, and I'm comfortable on television. So what I did throughout my career is anytime anyone asked me to do a little TV or, you know, um, radio or anything like that, I always said yes. And I was very serious about my tennis career, but I just... Whenever I was given the opportunity, whether it worked for local TV stuff in Australia or I did some Eurosport when I was at the French Open, they were sort of like plucking players. Hey, would you do a match here and there? I always said yes. Um, And then in 1997, I believe it was, um, or actually at the end of 96, I did a random couple of things for ESPN and a little bit because of Mary Carrillo, our very good friend. Um, Mary, I always passed on a bit of knowledge to Mary. If she asked me about some players, I always, always give her sort of a synopsis of them and, and uh, was the comeback of Monica Sellis in Canada. And Betsy Nagelson was working for ESPN with Mary Carrillo, but Betsy wanted to watch Monica's comeback live. She wanted to be in the box for Monica because her late husband, um, Mark McCormick, was her agent. And so Betsy didn't want to call the match. She wanted to watch the match. So ESPN said to Mary, well, what are we going to do? And Mary said, well, Renee Stubbs is here. Why don't, you, why don't you let me do the match with her? And so good for them. They said, sure, okay. They trusted Mary. And so I did the match with Mary. So I kind of had my foot in the door with ESPN and then they asked me to do one or two things else. And then 97, I got injured with my wrist. And for some reason, um, Dennis Denninger from ESPN called me and said, hey, would you mind doing the finals? of the Australian Open with Cliff Drysdale because Betsy Nagelson had to leave for some reason. And I said, sure, I'm injured. I'm not playing. I'll do it. So I did my first ever Grand Slam final with Cliff Drysdale. Um, it was Martina Hingis against Mary Pierce. And it was a very quick match. Um, and that was sort of it. I sort of got my foot in the door there with them. And then throughout my career, once I stopped playing, I just kept Going to people saying, "Hey, uh, I'd love to do some work. I never had an agent, and I just—I uh, think I just got my foot in the door just from my personality and going up and saying I want to work."
2: Renee, you've always had a knack, though. Ben and I have talked about this privately, but you really see the game well. And I—I'm—I'm not expressing that very well as a writer, but in other, what I'm getting at is there are a lot of former players on the airwaves, as you know. You're surrounded by them, and they're all very, very good. But there's something about your insights and your confidence in your insights. And they're often borne out. Clearly, the viewer can see that you know what you're talking about. Did you feel that this was something you had going for you going back to your playing days? Is it the fact that you what are the main reasons you see why you have had this view of the game and and, an ability to dissect it so well? Was that always
1: Yeah, I don't know, Steve. I think that um, I'm a big believer in knowing your lane, right? This is in business or in life or whatever it is. And, you know, I don't propose to anybody that I know how to run a business, for example. So if I'm ever going to do that, I get somebody to run my business for me, right? And I just feel like my lane is being able to watch a tennis match and emotionally, not just tactically, but emotionally read the game. Um, it, It does come innately and naturally to me. I don't know how or don't know why, but I can sit and watch a match. I can watch someone's slight movement. Um, I'll give you an example. Um, you know, Azarenka, Serena Williams semifinal a couple of years ago in the pandemic. Unbelievable sitting-
0: match. Unbelievable match.
1: Well, interestingly, you know, knowing Serena so well, and obviously knowing Vika, but also Serena more importantly, and knowing what she was trying to accomplish there. She was dominating that match up a set 6-love or 6-1, whatever it was, first set, and she missed a return uh, on break point, I believe it was, to go up to love, I think. Um, so it was to really blow this match apart. And she missed the return in the net. And I was not commentating the match. I was actually not on that match, I was, but I was courtside because there was nobody in the crowd, so I thought I'd right. sit in the crowd. you know. And uh, I remember when she hit that return into the net and her body language told me everything I needed to know at that moment because... As a player, I was incredibly emotional. So I think that is something that is hard for some, pe- some people who commentate to get because they weren't emotional maybe. So they don't feel those feelings like I do. So I saw that night, oh, my God, the whole match just changed because I knew Serena got unbelievably tight in that moment. And knowing Vika, not being, she would never give up, and also knowing their past and also knowing what Serena was trying to achieve, I knew that that was the moment that the whole match changed. And then vice versa in the, in the final when Vika missed a relative, for her, a back, backhand she didn't put away to go up a set and three love. You see someone's body language and that's the time that I will say it on air. Because as you said, Steve, I sort of sometimes put myself on the line by saying stuff that I do. But it's, it's, it's something that I'm a very frontal lobe person and what I feel comes out of my mouth. Sometimes too often. <laughs> but, but And sometimes too often on Twitter. But I just, I feel like that's, you got to put yourself on the line. And I feel like that's what I do when I commentate. I see it and I talk it and I say it immediately. And whether it could be just how someone plays um, too, but it's more, I think, more the emotional side. And it's also what helps me with coaching as well.
0: Yeah. I, wanted, I want to get into the coaching in a second. But before, when you said uh, the Serena Vika match, and my, my, my just wide smile came up. It's because, yeah, that was during the pandemic, but that was the second match that night. The first match was Jen Brady versus Naomi Osaka. A lot of yep. tennis fans will remember that night as one of the best nights of tennis. I don't care, men or women. That was one of the best nights of tennis that we've seen. I mean, the level that night was ridiculous. And we had, we had Jen on, and we talked a lot about that match. What a night as a tennis fan to watch both those matches.
1: <laughs> yeah, that was an incredible night. And, you know, back on that semifinal, Jen, I, um, I don't think I said it that night, but I did feel it. When Jen didn't query, uh, I believe it was at 4-3 to go down the break in the third, and she had three challenges. And she hit a ball that was on the line on break point, and they called it out. And she did not question that challenge and did not challenge that call, which to me pisses me off because I'm like we had the technology and you guys know how I feel about, <laughs> you know, the electronic line calling. If we'd had electronic line calling, it would have been Jen's point or she may have won that point and she may have served herself out of that tr- trouble. And it may have been four all instead, it became five, three, I believe. And Naomi served the match out just like that in five minutes, it was over. Mm. And in my mind, Jen didn't challenge that. And that was me thinking subconsciously that Jen didn't think she could win that match.
0: And she talked about that with us when she was in the finals of Australia. She said that just with us, um, Stephen, and I know you, you recently chatted with her. I listened to yeah. it. And she said that, too, the belief that she yeah. didn't necessarily have the belief that Grand slam Final. That's interesting you say that. Um, yeah.
2: Hey, don't you think in turn that also is maybe partially Jen's lack of experience being in a big U.S. Open semifinal and not having a, a, a greater sense of taking advantage of the technology and how she owed it to herself to, to use it?
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Only Jen will be really able to answer that question. But for me, it comes more down to the self-belief, the little, I call it the subconscious and conscious mind. And I think the subconscious mind is the one that always wins in the end. And I, I only can say that because that's how I did, that's what happened to me. But I think the subconscious mind was the whole time was going, oh my God, can I win this match? Can I be in the final? This is crazy. And then that call came and rather than be like, hell no, I'm not going down today. That ball was on the line. I need to see challenge. She was just like, okay, and turn around and went and got a towel. And I was like, what do you do? You've got three challenges. Even if you think it may be in or out, challenge. But that was a that was a sort of like the way Lindsay Davenport used to be or you know, my old doubles partner, Lisa Raymond. Instead of dealing with it, would rather just shut down and that's their way of dealing with pressure and it's nothing against them it's not to say that she didn't want to win the match but that's their way of dealing with pressure is to shut down mine was to fight it's fight or flight right and uh i would have bitched at the umpire like for five minutes until they checked that mark Mm -hmm. right whereas jen because she's that person that's kind of a little bit shy she went the other way and Maybe a big lesson. I don't know. Because I've seen Wozniaki did the same thing years and years before at the US Open. So, and she's not somebody that wouldn't query something. So, I don't know. Only she can answer that question. But what a F up that was.
0: Oh my God. It was unbelievable. Um, you, you know, I want to go into the coaching because you mentioned earlier with Sam Stozier and it ties into your broadcasting abilities. Obviously, as a player, you've experienced um, what these current players are and the players that you work with are doing on a court. But my question for you is, since you're also so good in the booth upstairs or at courtside, has that helped you? Do you think that's helped you in your coaching abilities to have both, not only the playing experience, but also now you've stepped outside of that a little bit and see it in another angle, another way. Do you think that helps you in your coaching abilities when you're working with players?
1: I mean, maybe in some respects, because I've watched so much tennis and I have to you know, talk about it and I have to, um, you know, watch a lot of players. So clearly I get to see uh, them. I think one of the reasons I ended up getting into coaching in a lot of ways is because really Carolina Pliskova um, out of the blue, I'd uh, done a little bit of coaching. i traveled a little bit with Casey DeLacqua when she was coming back from her, um, you know, from her uh, falling and hitting her head and, her, you know, coming back from that and her injuries and a little bit of here and there with Sam Stoza, but really, I hadn't really been in the coaching you know, realm, nobody really knew me as a coach. Um, and then Carolina Plushkova out of the blue, just text messages me. And it's like, Hey, can you come to Asia with me? What? Like <laughs> I'd had maybe five or six conversations with Carolina, but I think one of the reasons why she, I haven't asked her this question probably should, but I think one of the reasons why she wanted me on her, in her coaching staff is because she had watched me because I know how much she watches tennis had watched me and her husband had commented to me on Twitter that they really liked my commentary. And I think one of the things that meaning is that I think they liked my view of what I was seeing, what I was watching and how I could pick apart somebody when I was commentating. And I think they thought, why not get that in our coaching, you know, group. And so when we started working together, she did quite well. And she made the semis of the championships that year, had some tremendous wins over great players and Muguruza and Venus and, Um, came very close to being in the final and then it was just a one-off thing but I think they really enjoyed it and then when she was struggling the next year because she'd already agreed to work with somebody else the next year when they weren't doing well she called me up again and was like you know I'm struggling would you help me out again and then subsequently for six months she did really really well Um, and so I think I got my name out there with the coaching situation that way Um, but I think I think what makes me what makes me a decent coach is that emotionally, I get what they're going through and emotionally, I can read a player really well. And I know when it's time to sometimes be really hard on them. And I know when it's time to be really loving towards them and get them to tell me where they're at emotionally. On top of being able to obviously pick apart an opponent quite well, I'm very good, obviously, with analyzing a player and knowing how to beat them. And knowing what will work and what won't um so all of those things maybe i I think it's more less about the commentary i think it got me a job (laughs) but it's i think it's more about um my ability to be able to see and pick apart and give somebody a good game plan but also to understand why they aren't better and being able to tell them why and how they can get better i think that's more about it i think emotionally i tap into a lot of things for them
0: got it Hey, we're, we're, and, you know, before I ask Steve, before we end it for anything else, um, I want to talk a little bit about the podcast, your podcast, because I know it recently changed the name to the Renee Stubbs Podcast. I know that's all part of um, Racket, which you're yeah. heavily involved in. You've yeah. had awesome guests. Um, I love it. You know, I really enjoy listening to it. Tell a little bit about how much fun you're having with that, because you've done it for quite a while now.
1: Yeah, I mean, I solely rely, as you know, uh, on, you know, just calling out, Players and texting them and be like, "Hey, would you be on the podcast?" and um, get finding them to get time um, to do it. I really enjoy it. I one of the things that I love about and I always say this when I do my on-court commentary or my uh, on-court interviews. I always say to players, "This is your chance. This is your chance to show people who you really are, not the 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 person that they think on the tennis court." Because if anyone watched me play, they think I was the biggest bitch in the world. I mean, I was (laughs) psyched. right I mean Steve you laugh but it's true like you know anyone who watched me god she's so mean she's so this and that but off the court I'm completely different to that so it's my my I say to them this is your chance to show who you really are okay smile you know act be relaxed be yourself um so when I interview them I really want to show a, a different side of them And I also want people to know at home how hard this life is. And it is not an easy life to be a professional tennis player and the stresses that they go through. And, you know, my recent interview with Marta Kostchuk of course, from Ukraine, I mean, talking about everything that she's going through and it's really nice when people tweet to me or text me and say, wow, I really learned a lot about her. And, you know, if I can give little stories and little anecdotes where they can, tell people what they went through like Sam Stoza even who I know as well as anyone told me I don't think I've ever told you this story and told me that one of the stories about her playing Serena Williams in the final and what she thought when Serena did something and I was like no I never knew that story she goes Yeah, I really never told many people that story so when people tell me that stuff on the pod I'm like this is what I want I want people to know more about this life as a tennis player what you go through on the court and who you really are as a person. And when I get to the end of it and I push, you know, stop on my record, I'm like, Oh, that was great. I hope people find you as great as I do. And that's really what I want to do when I, when I do the podcast.
0: Well, I think when I hit stop on this record, we're going to repeat the, the your similar thoughts right there, because this has been awesome. And, and Steve, you know, before we let Renee go and we so appreciate it, we know, we, we call people like you gamers cause you're not a hundred percent right now dealing with COVID right now. And you've been awesome yeah. this whole time.
1: I'm wiping my nose. and.
0: <laughs> so uh, Steve, before we let Renee go, any, anything else that you want to uh, chat about?
2: I just want to throw in one last question, Renee. Uh, number one, you obviously established an excellent rapport with Serena Williams. It comes through very clear. <laughs> Some of the interviews you've done with her through the years, she seems to see you as more of a friend than a broadcaster. How did that develop? And secondly, to get back to Sam Stoser, why after that brilliant 2011 US Open when she destroyed Serena, did we not see more great singles from her? Sing, uh, I, I thought she might be capable of winning a couple more majors after that. It really didn't happen. Very likable woman, I thought a great player. So just your, your thoughts on the friendship with Serena and why Sam didn't perhaps back up that US Open triumph uh, with, with a couple more majors.
1: Well, first on Sam, um, look, I think that Sam, first of all, she got really unlucky with injuries, Um, really unlucky. Um, You know, I think she could have very well won um, the French Open the year that Ostapenko won it. She was leading Ostapenko a set and maybe even a break and always beat Ostapenko, had the perfect game to beat her. And then the players after that really Sam had a great record against on Clay. She'd won Strasbourg the week before. So her confidence was sky high. We all know that her best surface was Clay, even though she won the US Open. And she sustained a terrible fracture in her hand <laughs> in the match, playing Ostapenko. Literally almost won the match, lost at six-four in the third, literally running around her forehand to hit backhands because her to hit the forehand had hurt her hand so much. And um you know, subsequently Ostapenko went on to win that tournament. So um, she was just so unlucky with that way. She got Lyme's disease, like, you know, had various different issues after that. And I think, um, to be honest with you, I think she actually overachieved. I really believe that. I think she, and I don't say that in a derogatory way. She was, Sam, the way she played and she was so highly strong and she did have the massive serve and the massive forehand, but I Think she achieved so much in her career, Steve. I think she would be so pleased with what she achieved. I think not yep. winning the French is the one thing that I think really still bothers her, not beating Schiavone in that final. But Schiavone played the match of her life. And if you talk about Sam, she beat, I believe, in that tournament, Serena, Henin, and Yankovic. And the three yes. of them, I think, like yes. one, two, and three in the world. I yep. mean, you, she it was kind of like what Layla Fernandez did last year at the US Open, she played the best tournament up until the final um, and was the best player in that tournament. So I really feel sorry that she didn't win a French Open because I think she deserved that. But I think she achieved a lot more than I, than a lot of people expected her, but I don't know, Steve, that's only an answer question that she can really answer. But I think given her, she did sustain like top 10 for a long time. So she was very, very consistent with her career. Um, I don't know. She just, she just was that player that played a little bit tight sometimes and, you know, the back end would get a little bit all over the place. And if she wasn't uh, feeling it really big time on her forehand, I, I don't know the answer to it, but I think a 22 year career winning what she did, she's for me, a lock hall of famer. Um, and so I think she'd be really pleased with her career. Serena, on the other hand, uh, I, I met Serena um, and Venus when they were 10 and 11 and I actually had dinner with Serena the, uh, Venus the other night and uh, way before I had COVID. So don't worry about it. But, um, <laughs> but um I think I met them when they were 10 and 11. So I met them before they were even remotely well-known. I hit tennis balls with them and we walked off the court and uh, I was with Pam Shriver at the time I was staying with her. And she said, what do you think? And I said, well, I think the little one's better, but you know, that was Serena of course. And the only reason is because Serena just technically was a little bit better of a player. So I've known them that long. Um, And I just, with my personality, they had no, no choice, but to be friends with me. I played team tennis with them many times. So I got to know them a lot better there. Um, We just, we just, our friendship just grew just from the time we were around each other. And I, as I said, I played well, team tennis with them many times. So that was also a way. And I just, I just befriended them. wasn't afraid to talk to them. I wasn't afraid to be um, friends with them. And I spent a lot of time out with them at dinners and (laughs) various different parties and things and they've always been such great friends to me. Um and I just think they've been so great for the for tennis and just the world in general for African American young African American girls in this country. And we've seen how many of them have followed in their footsteps into tennis. Um, And so yeah, Serena and I and Venus both Venus and Serena and I have just always remained friends and I just adore them both.
0: So great. So great. Uh, Steve, this was a privilege to have Renee on we're both so thankful that um you were able to be with us especially with you not feeling 100 percent. this was a lot of fun and 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 thank you very much Renee. this this was really really great
1: oh you're welcome guys and you know i, I avoided uh, having it this weekend because i was supposed to be at the f1 races in miami but that got put away as soon as i got COVID. so i'm here in new york but uh you know uh thanks for having me today it was really enjoyable and um yeah, keep it going. Keep it going. We've got a lot of great tennis ahead of us.
0: We too. Thanks, Renee. Feel better real real shortly.
1: Feel better soon. You're welcome. Thanks. Bye.